people and thank you to the Berger brothers who assisted as well. And David, I'm going to put you on the spot. When is your last Sunday with us? Next. next Sunday. Okay. Well, remind me of that. We want to pray a prayer of blessing over you, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But Dave is going into a special program, and we're going to ask the Lord to bless him and to use him, and excited for the opportunity that the Lord has brought uh, his way. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and our focus this morning is on verses 27 through 31. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 through 31. Our title this morning as we're studying through Matthew's gospel is the glorious title of the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. To be a Christian is to love the gospel of Jesus Christ. To have responded in faith to the call of Christ and to embrace his gospel. And as the children of God, as Children that we just heard who've been adopted, who've been bought by the precious blood of Christ, who were once blind to our sins, who've heard the call of the Holy Spirit, who showed us our sin. Friends, we never tire of hearing of it. We never tire of speaking of it. We never tire of singing about it and hearing others tell about it as well. The gospel is the most glorious reality on the face of the planet to ever happen to fallen man. And so week after week, as we look into Matthew's gospel, we see Matthew is unfolding the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last week, may the Lord stir up our hearts and give us eyes of faith to rejoice with those who rejoice, to examine our hearts and to also pray for the lost among us and to ask the Lord to bless his gospel. So as we look into our text this morning, we find it in Matthew chapter 9, Verse 27, so if you'll join me there, we'll read it, and I will read it out to you. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when Jesus had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, Now see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. This is the word of God for you, his people. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. As so we look into Matthew's gospel, we find in our text here this morning, this is the eighth overall miracle that we've been working through and that we come to. And this is the eighth miracle that Matthew brings us to, and specifically it regards blindness as we just read. To lay a little bit of context, a little bit of background so that we're not confused here, if you've grown up in the life of the church, you've heard, no doubt, the miracle accounts of Jesus and so maybe in your mindset, you may think, oh, yeah, this is when Jesus performs that, that miracle of healing the blind. I don't want us to lose the wonder of it. Listen, you can be blind today, and doctors have no way to help you. This is truly an astounding miracle. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are no miracles of giving sight to the blind, nor in the New Testament after the Gospels. But when we look at Jesus' ministry, 
There are more miracles of him giving sight to the blind than any other single category. You could say it in this way. This is Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite miracles. Simply by volume, that's recorded for us. Now, the giving of sight to those who are blind is not an act of man. Again, remember what Matthew is teaching us as we look into the, this gospel record. Matthew wants us to see Jesus and see these signs and say, this is Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one whom you've been looking for. This is the promised deliverer. This is the promised king. Look to him and live. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, we see that the giving of sight to the blind is a divine activity of God. Exodus 4, 11, So the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I? The Lord. Remember the context, Moses is asking the Lord, how am I supposed to go and be your man and be your mouthpiece and speak to Pharaoh? I can't even talk clearly. And that's the response that, that he gives to Moses. The response that I am, that I am gives. In Psalm 146 verse 8, the psalmist tells us, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. And so it is the understanding of Scripture that when healing or the healing of the blind is taking place, it is singularly the act of God. It is singularly the act of God and His Son. And so as we look into this text, as we walk through the text this morning, we want to see some truths here that maybe the Lord can help us to recall, rehearse, and maybe look to for the first time and live. The first thing I want us to see as we look in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, is their cry. The Bible here tells us that there are two men who come to Jesus. Remember the context. Last week we saw two miracles that Matthew gives to us that are, are connected. The healing of Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue who comes to Jesus. We see and saw the whole account to where there's a number of things taking place. This was a man of influence. He lost his only daughter who was 12. And as one of our dear ladies pointed out to me this morning, I didn't necessarily make the connection. And as she gave it to me, I'm like, you are, you're so right. Uh, the woman had the issue of blood for 12 years. The daughter was 12 years. I didn't fully study that out, so I don't know what the significance of that is. But Matthew tells us that these two things are in sync. Another thing that, as always, preachers beat themselves up on their way home and think, I should have said that. I shouldn't have said that, Right? <laughs> It was when we were thinking about the qualities of what does this text tell us about Jesus. Something I should have pulled out as well that I didn't have the clarity of mind to do. But as I was reflecting on my way home is that Jesus is no respecter of persons. We know that. I just didn't pull it out then. Here's a woman who's an outcast who has the issue of blood for 12 years. And here is a powerful, influential leader. And yet Jesus has time for them both. What a beautiful, what a beautiful portrait for us. Well, that's the context, and so Matthew comes right out of that. Look with me at verse uh, 26, or verse 25. But when the crowd was put outside, remember they didn't believe, and so he just simply dismisses them. Jesus went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this report, or the report of this, went out into all the land. Now, verse 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men are calling out. So we notice right off the bat their cry. The giver of life has just raised a young girl from the dead. Now remember, Jesus is in Capernaum. 
And our text tells us he returns back home. Earlier we've seen this is Peter's home that he shares. He's borrowing from Peter. And the news is immediately spreading about his miracles. And verse 27 tells us there are two blind men following him crying out. And you'll notice in the scripture reading, I lifted my voice to some extent to accentuate this cry. In the Greek, this word krazo means to, to cry out, literally shout or screaming with great intensity. Mark chapter 5, verse 5 uh, uses it to uh, describe the unintelligible babbling of the demoniac of Gadara. Matthew 21, 15, this word, the same word is used to describe the shouts of the, the children in the temple who were praising Jesus. Mark 15, 37, the Lord himself used this, this word is used on the cross as he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Revelation 12, verse 2, this word is used of a woman screaming in the pains of labor and childbirth. Here, here's the point. This crowd is in the midst of a jostling, busy, congested group. Remember, Jesus' fame is, is growing. It's more about the signs and the miracles. People getting witness. Some are there for a show. Others are there because they brought someone they love. But people are present. For these two men to have a chance, for these two men to have a hope at getting Jesus' attention, all they have is not their eyes collectively. All they have is their faith and their voice. So they're yelling. They're screaming as if their, eyes, their lives depend upon it and their eyes depend upon it. The text here tells us that these are, these are two blind men. So we consider the ancient world. Blindness is not only common today, but it, it was even more common. And I want to just to maybe stroke a chord of, of empathy. Uh, those of you that either wear glasses or contacts, I just want you to raise your hand for a second. The point is not to embarrass you, but I want you to think about something with me. For some of you, you lived the first 12 years of your life to pull an age that we've just been talking about out of the, the hat. And uh, you thought life was great, and it was. Uh, you know, just full of fun and adventure. But the day came where at school, maybe, or a physical or a routine exam, that they discovered you were blind. You couldn't read the letters on the chart. You discovered that, that trees had leaves on them and fruit on them. If that was your experience, just I'm curious. Somewhere along your developmental age, yes. For the first couple of years of your life, life was great. But then you realized what you had been missing. For some of you, you can't see between here and that door, you're, you're blind as a bat. You can only see what is, is right here. We all know what it's like to struggle in this life with visual eyesight problems. But friends, thank God for technology. Thank God for inventors. Thank God for doctors. Thank God for medicine. To be born in the ancient world was simply to have a sentence upon your life. It just it was what it was. Your lack of eyesight or ability to see clearly would lead to all types of problems. Blindness was very common in the ancient world and ancient times, and it still is in some of the most underdeveloped parts of the world. This is due to unsanitary conditions, malnutrition, sand, sun, uh, war, all the different types of effects that go to people receiving lack of care or being exposed to diseases. One commentator says this, many infants were born blind because of various diseases even suffered by the mother during pregnancy. Many others became blind a few days after birth by being exposed to venereal diseases, especially gonorrhea, as they passed through the birth canal. In fact, that's what led some to ask when Jesus performed another miracle regarding the blind man, 
this obnoxious question, Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Such a question would be understood with further clarity as we think about that type of understanding. There's a lesson for us here to remember as we consider these men crying out to Jesus in this fast-paced situation. There's a traffic jam of people. Jesus is exhausted, and he is worn, and he is heading home. Jesus never finds rest when we look into the Gospels. He is coming to seek and save that which is lost. He is coming not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. But what we see here in our text is that when Jesus performs a physical miracle, it usually points to a greater meaning spiritually. And friends, at our text this morning, that is what we find. As we look at these men's cry, we see two things specifically about their cry. It is hopeful and it is humble. Notice what they say, this, this cry that they're yelling. They're raising their voices together. And one thing we see in the gospel records is that usually blind men at least come in twos. They're, they're hanging together. They're staying together like the lepers and the outcasts. They're in this thing together. There is no compassion for them. They have the same common lot in life. And yet these two men are united by something special. Verse 27, two blind men followed Jesus crying out and they cried and said, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now this jumps off the page at us within the context because Jesus is performing miracle after miracle and it's in the backdrop of unbelief. It's in the backdrop of criticism and critique. It's in the backdrop of why aren't you fasting and why aren't your followers fasting and what, what's this all about and he's not the Messiah, he's a fraud, he's a son of Beelzebub, this is of Satan. Matthew wants us to see these great portraits of saving faith within the backdrop of scorn, of arrogance, of disdain. And it's truly when you understand that backdrop that what these men say shine as diamonds on a black velvet piece of cloth. These two men's cry speaks of humility. Notice what they say, have mercy upon us. What does it mean to have mercy? This is a theme we're constantly pulling out. To have mercy means to have concern for, care for, to show kindness to, to someone who is in need. To have mercy is to give to someone what, excuse me, to have true mercy in the terms of God and his mindset and salvation is to withhold from individuals what they rightly deserve. Here, it speaks to com human compassion and kindness. Their need is no small thing. Doctors today, as we pointed out, cannot heal the blind. And yet these men hear of the works and the ways of Jesus, the wonderful works of Jesus. And they come in this backdrop of unbelief and scorn, crying out, and they ask for sight. They ask Jesus to do what only he can do. In John chapter 9, verse 32, the man born blind the context is the man born blind. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Verse 33 of that passage, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And Jesus certainly is the Son of God. And this is the approach that they come, asking the Son of David to have mercy upon him. Listen, this is not out of expectation. This is not out of something, oh, this cry is not out of arrogance. This is a humble cry for the mercy of God and compassion of God to be shown to them. Friends, this is salvation. This is a spiritual 
metaphor for what we cry out as sinners coming to God, asking Him to save us. When our Lord saves us, He saves those who've come to see their need of Him. The Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts. He opens our eyes and we're able to see our need for Christ. Remember, these are those who are present that day who do not see their need. And yet these men see their need. Spiritually, there was a day when you and I were unable to see. But then, through the conviction process, the Holy Spirit of God began to work in our hearts, in our lives. We were born again. We were able to see the beauty of Christ, our need for Christ. We were able to throw our good works overboard and to cling to Christ, that mighty anchor of our faith and our hope. Friends, has that taken place in your heart and in your life? This is the blindness that we're born with. This is the blindness that, that we are responsible for. This is the blindness that causes us not to be spiritually innocent. We are guilty, born in trespasses and sins. What we see here in this text is this metaphor for the blindness, the blind miracle that Jesus performs is Jesus saves people who understand that they don't deserve sight. Jesus, have mercy upon us, now son of David. Why don't we deserve it? We deserve the wages of our sin. We deserve the consequences of our sins. Friends, we hear a lot today about justice and mercy. We don't want justice from God. The only thing that we want from God is his mercy. Lord, don't give us justice. Don't give me the justice that I deserve. Father, would you show me your mercy? Extend to us your mercy. And this is the beauty of the wonderful cross. This is the beauty of the glorious cross where God's justice and wrath and his mercy are united, appeased, and displayed upon the Son of God. It's what we'll be rehearsing this evening as we remember the Lord's death and burial and resurrection the Lord's table. What we see here is these men are humble. We see their humble cry. And it's a reminder to us, friends, that God hears humble people. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And hum humility is a gift of the Spirit. It's a key sign that God has softened and broken through the hard heart. In these men's, it's a sign that Ezekiel 36 and 37 has taken place where the heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been placed there. The proud, like the Pharisees, always feel like they deserve more or better. But the humble are grateful people realizing all is of grace. And I'm so convinced of this text that if Jesus had decided to not heal these men, they still would have believed. We see that leading to the next thing that they say. This is, a, this is a cry of humility. But we see in the next phrase, there is a cry of honor to the Lord. Friends, it's a reminder to us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I'm convinced that if God had decided not to heal these men, they still would have believed, still would have followed and believed that he was the Messiah. 
James chapter 3, verse 17 reminds us that our attitude towards those around us, a spirit of humility that is birthed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who know they need mercy are merciful people. James chapter 3, verse 17 says this, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Friends, is this present in our life, this saving faith, this trust in God, this receiving of mercy, of knowing that you are a sinner who is saved by grace? Here's a question for us. Are you in a place where God must discipline you because you are proud and hard-hearted? Or are you in a place where God is not speaking to you because your heart has heard and your heart is hardened and hardened and hardened? Are you in a place where you can hear his voice, his cry, and respond with faith and receive his grace and his blessing? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. This is a theme in the New Testament. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to elders and all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see their humble cries. They come to Jesus not demanding, not expecting, in the sense of they deserve, but with hopeful anticipation. This is a humble cry. Secondly, this is a hopeful cry in their designation. Verse 27, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon us. So what is the significance of this? If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible tells us when Matthew describes the coming of Jesus, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light, in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Matthew describes the coming of Jesus as the fact of a great light is shining. In this world of darkness, light has now Dawn. And that's what Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 where he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened so that you know the hope of his calling. What we find here is when they cry out with this hopeful anticipation, Jesus, thou son of David. This is the first time this is used here. These two men burst upon the scene of arrogance and pride and of unbelief or disbelief with a blazing light of faith. This is the son of David. The first time this was mentioned was in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, when Matthew begins to say, this is my book to the chosen people of God, to the Jews specifically. I want you to hear, I want you to know that this Jesus is the Messiah. In Matthew 1, verse 1, if you remember, Matthew opens the gospel of Matthew saying this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friends, you've got to know your scriptures to understand the designation of this. You've got to understand that this is, there's an ongoing drama of redemption taking place here. There's been covenants and promises made to both Abraham and to David. And what Matthew wants us to know is this Jesus is the promised one. For example, 1 Chronicles 17, 11. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house, and it shall be when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers that I will set up your seed after you, not Solomon, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. 
and his throne shall be established forever. Jesus, thou son of David, this is him. This is the one of whom God spoke of that he would send, that he would establish his throne, his house, and his kingdom. Son of David speaks of the future glory of Zion or the messianic age. So it leads us to ask the question of the text and even here and now as we observe it. The people there that day, how will we know when he has come? How will we know, as Simeon said, my eyes have seen salvation? Isaiah chapter 35 verses 4 through 6 helps give the answer to this. Listen carefully. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Behold, your God will come. And when he comes, he will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. How? When will we know? Verse 5, when the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This miracle is a work of God, friends, not a work of anyone else. This is how we know that this is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap for like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? When will we know? How do we know who the frauds are? And how do we know who the exact Messiah is? Well, here, these men knew. Jesus, thou Son of God, thou Son of David, have mercy upon us. These men are making a messianic confession. This is a, a confession of faith, like a version of what our children were singing just a moment ago, making a statement about, we believe. What is it you believe? We believe that this is the Messiah. We believe that this is the son of David. This, this is the promised one. As these friends are yelling, yelling, it's not just about their healing. They're making a confession of faith about the person and work of Christ. They know exactly what they're doing. These men are giving evidence and confession to the fact that an internal light has dawned upon them. Don't miss this. A light has dawned. Well, wait a second. They can't see it. They're blind. These men can't see as everyone else sees. They are physically blind. So we're talking about two things here. There is a, a spiritual blindness and there is a physical blindness. While all the world can see physically, but yet are blind spiritually, these men are blind physically, but see spiritually. And here they have a lesson for those present that day and for us this morning. One commentator says this, these men did not have eyesight, but they had insight. Insight means they could see with the eyes of the mind. They heard, they understood the true nature of Jesus. And they were insightful enough to know that they needed Christ. They needed the Messiah. This was a time when the Messiah would come, that the ears of the dead would be unstopped, the eyes of the blind be opened, the lame would leap, as Isaiah said, and the mute would shout. And friends, here we have them crying out, have mercy upon us, O son of David. Here we see their cry. Secondly, in verse 28, we see the curious response. And this is where there's elements of this account that are interesting. The way it ends. Here we see maybe the first thing that is truly interesting. Verse 28 says, Now when Jesus had come into the house, the blind men came to him. So notice the way the account opens up. They follow after Jesus, crying out loudly after Jesus. And if you've been in the third world, 
you, you can remember maybe in your mind's eye, there are open places of market and places where there's, there's animals. It's very noisy. It's very loud um, in its own way. There's a congestion of people. The, the common spaces are very, there's not spread out. There's not a Target, Walmart, and something else. There is one place to get this. There is one place to get that. And those one places are all together in a, in a marketplace. And so it's, it's hustling, it's bustling, and there's people. And in my mind's eye, I try to just work through and imagine how were these men heard? There's all types of dynamics at play. These men are having to work to get Jesus' attention. These men are shouting and yelling. and just. But it's one thing to have shouting in a quiet room. It's another thing to have shouting in a noisy marketplace. How are these men to be heard? In fact, why is Jesus not stopping? Jesus continues to walk. The text says, and when he had come into the house. In other words, he didn't stop like he did for the woman with the issue of blood. There is a perseverance that is highlighted here. Jesus continues to walk mysteriously to us. And these men continue to seek. These men continue to confess. And their perseverance is seen in two ways. The first one is that they continue to walk, as I pointed out, through the crowd. And then the second is that they wait upon a response from Christ. They don't give up. Friends, this is true faith. This is true seeking. So many of us will pray and seek God. We'll ask the Lord for some things. And when he doesn't answer according to our timetable, we quickly lose heart. We quickly lose faith. We think God does not hear. But these men are persistent. These men are patient. There's a couple things I want us to see here. As we think about how Jesus works, why does he work in this way? And it's reminders to us, as we point out in our Sunday school class this morning, delayed answers are not always denied answers. This is an unusual text because it stands in contrast to Jesus stopping and hearing, being interrupted by Jairus, being stopped by the woman with the issue of blood. But here we have two men who are crying out, and yet he does not respond immediately. There's a reminder for us that God does not always respond immediately, and his delays do not mean he's denying us. Jesus, remember, works in full harmony and in accordance to the Father's will. God works after the counsel of his own will, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. It's a reminder to us that God is not working with you according to what you think is best for you. God's ways are, are not our ways. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now for us, in this instantaneous age... Everything is instant. Click a button in two days, it's present. Maybe even be same day. We get mad if the wait's longer than three seconds in the fast food line because it's supposed to be fast food. We're used to getting what we want when we want it. This is just the world we live in. So we're not, we don't handle delays very well. But friends, for the believer, for the child of God, God's delays are a win-win. As we think about Jesus kind of continuing on, hearing, but he doesn't respond right away. These men must persevere. These men must continue to seek him. But friends, it's a reminder to us that God's delays mean more mercy for us. The very thing that they're crying out is what God delights. Don't miss this. What God delights to bestow. What God delights to give. Lamentations 3, 23. Your mercies are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Friends, on your prayer list and whatever your need is that you have, you're seeking God and you, like the widow, are continuing to come before the judge day after day and week after week. Don't think God's denials to you or unanswered prayers to you mean that he will not answer in due time. God's ways are perfect. His timing is impeccable. May the Lord help us and shepherd our hearts this morning to learn to trust him, to rest in him, and to know that his delays and his timing are often tests of our faith. And here what we see is there is a test of faith. These men are yelling and shouting, no doubt getting the crowd's attention. And what we see here is that there is a reward at the end of it. It's what James describes that produces the crown of righteousness. What is it that produces the crown of righteousness? It's delayed responses, trials, difficulties, hard times. James 1 verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Friends, the The hardest thing about the lost is the fact that there is no redeeming value to their struggle. That's a blunt truth. The promise of Scripture to the children of God is that there is a redeeming value to this. To the spiritual men, we will grow in perseverance and patience. We will receive God's mercy and grace. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called of Him. The child of God experiences blindness and pain and cancer just like anyone else does. But spiritually, we receive the grace and mercy of God. Their hopeful cry, this curious response. In number t- verse 28, we see number three, the compassion of Christ. His delay is not a denial. He turns, and notice the context here is they've come into the house. Verse 28, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do what? What you've been crying about. Have mercy upon you. Heal you. Save you. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Here, friends, we see a distinction between profession and possession. Men may say whatever they want to say in regards to their relationship with Christ, but yet not mean it. Unusually enough, if we examine our hearts, oftentimes there's hot air, there's activity, but yet our heart is not fully Joined to it. Here Jesus asked them a question. And he says, do you believe? Are you resting in the fact that I can heal you and save you? That I can change you? Will you become my disciple in, in essence? This question here is not meant to be a discouragement by Christ. But an affirmation, an encouragement. So many times it's about perspective. When we think about coming to Christ with our struggles and our trials, we can hear the echo of Christ say, do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. God, help me. I believe, I believe, I believe. But Lord, there's the hidden man of the heart that struggles, has doubt at times. Here they affirm their belief. They strengthen their belief and their response. Yes, Lord. Notice this name that they call him. This is Master. This is sovereign. This is the same response that Jairus and the woman gave last week. They have bowed the knee. They have surrendered to Christ. They see Jesus as who he says he is, and they believe him. They love him. Yes, Lord. In verse 29, we see the confirming miracle. 
Jesus is not afraid to touch the untouchable. We see this time and time again. He touched the leper. Here, the woman with the issue of blood, who's an outcast, who is an untouchable, touches Christ. He touches the dead girl last week. That, that, that's unclean unless you're the Messiah. The Jews weren't allowed to touch a dead body. And here, Jesus is not afraid to touch. And here we have another touching miracle. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. Here we have a beautiful response, a beautiful miracle, and yet an unusual circumstance as well. How are these guys not supposed to tell? Their Ray Charles glasses are gone. People have only known them one way. They've lived life with their canes, and they're no longer yelling. Aren't those the guys that are yelling all the time? Asking for a dime for the poor and looking up, and they just they have eyes now. How are they not supposed to respond? But yet, this is the command after Jesus performs this miracle. Now notice what he says. He says, when he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. This is not saying that they have enough faith. This is not speaking in terms of, of quantity. It's quality. It's the fact that faith is even present. According to what is in your heart. According to your confession that you have seen Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David. There is faith that you've made known. Let it be according to you. Why does Jesus say it like this? It's a reminder to us, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, friends, it is impossible to please him. These men come with hearts full of faith. And friends, it's why we pray so often, Lord, give us faith. Help us to have hearts full of faith. So often we work in the realm of the flesh, and it's why we must be worshipers before we are workers. We have, must have hearts full of faith because it is impossible to please him unless we come to him as he is, believing that he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. The writer of Hebrews says we believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. These men are diligently seeking him, and they have their reward of God's mercy and grace. Remember, friends, that faith must have an object. It's not your faith, it's the object. And these men's faith, the presence of faith, is in the Son of David. It's not, the, it's not the quantity of their faith or the volume of their faith. It's simply the fact that they look to Jesus and live and believe that he is both Lord and Christ. They say, you're not just the Messiah. You're not just the Son of David, but you're my Messiah. You're my Son of David. This is personal Verse 29, and their eyes were opened. Friends, behold the living God. What we have here before us is not a story, it's truth. It's a biblical account of God in Christ letting us know, as Matthew reveals it to us, that he is here. God is here. God in Christ. Christ, the Son of God. As we look at this text and wind down our thoughts, I want to remind us this morning, it is better that we be blind physically and see Jesus spiritually than to be able to see and be healthy and whole with no ophthal ophthalmological problems or eyesight problems, optometry problems, and yet be spiritually blind. As we see here, friends, look to Jesus and live. 
see this account of Matthew displaying for us the glories of Christ and call upon his mercy. Stake everything upon the Lord Jesus Christ and hear the word of the Lord this morning when he asks you, do you believe? Yes, Lord, we believe. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, but help my, my unbelief. Lord, why are you silent seemingly? Remember, his delays is not necessarily a denial. Ask, seek, knock, Matthew told us in Matthew chapter 7. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Stay at the foot of Jesus, resting in him, knowing that his purposes are perfect, that his ways are past finding out. Friends, I exhort you this morning, stake everything upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and live. Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul writes saying, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Again, in chapter 10, he says the same thing. Again and again throughout the New Testament, we see this. Whoever believes on Christ will not be put to shame. As we'll see the next couple of weeks, those who were there that day, who were critiquing, who are judging, who say, look at these guys. What's up with this? Those who have an attitude toward those who come in simplicity of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will put to shame because of their own stumbling. It is their own fault. But whoever believes on Christ will not be put to shame. Friends, are you resting in him? Can you recount the day where you looked to Christ and believed with simple faith and lived? Where you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again? Let me just exhort you this morning. It's no good thing in you. Nicodemus was the finest man in town. He never missed church. He gave regularly. He, he tied diligently and fasted diligently. He was a leader. He was a ruler. He just wasn't saved. He must be born again. He came to Jesus saying, we see the works that you're doing. We see the miracles that you're performing. But what, how, how was one saved? You must be born again. Friends, have you been born again? Well, so often, last Sunday morning, I believe it was, we sing this beautiful and marvelous song. And when we come to Christ with this simple faith, we're able to sing what John Newton described in Amazing Grace. John Newton, according to his own testimony, was the vilest offender, a wicked, wicked man who lived for the flesh, who abused people, who owned slaves and treated them horrifically. John Newton was a man who was the worst of the worst. In fact, in one account, he wrote and said that on a ship, he stood on the side in the middle of a storm in a drunken rage and blasphemed God and said, if there is a God, why don't you strike me down? Well, the Lord did strike him down, but not with lightning. He struck down his eyes of blindness. Only God can do that. Only God can take a, a blasphemer, a wicked man, and turn him into a son, an adopted son of God. John Newton would later go on to write these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Notice here, was blind, but now I see. That's what we're talking about. This story, this account tells us not just the two blind men who were healed of their physical blindness, but this is a testimony to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray together.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Our hearts are, are humbled. Father, every single one of us who are saved, while we may not have been saved from our blindness, or have been saved spiritually, all glory be to Christ. Father, we exalt in you and you alone. You are the son of David. Father, you would go on to prove that, not only through your miracles, but you came to live the life that we're supposed to live, but yet our sin separates us from a holy God. Lord, we could live a million lifetimes, and yet we are prone to wonder. We are prone to sin. We are given over to sin. You came and lived the perfect life for us. You died the death that is our death, and yet you died it for us. You were buried in the tomb, and he rose three days later, displaying power over not only blindness, but power over death, hell, and the grave. Father, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we believe in. This is the rock, Lord, that, that we will not be afraid of. There is no offense or stumbling with Christ. We rest in you and you alone. To all who look to Jesus, they will live and not be ashamed. Father, if there's anyone here present this morning, we pray that if they don't know Christ, today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, help us to rest in you and your purposes, your timing, to be at peace with your timetable, with your ways that are past finding out. Would you help us to have the grace to persevere, to receive your mercy and strength for the trial, knowing, Lord, that we will come forth as gold. We trust you. We worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.